Uh, he's a good guy. Mm. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it is uh, really just so good to be back. I got to tell you, um, being gone for that period of time, I think my my mind hasn't quite caught up with my my body yet. Um, and uh, so be patient with me in these few minutes. If I seem a little distracted at points, it might be that my mind's not here. It checks out. But before I introduce our speaker this morning, I'd just like to say a bit about our sabbatical and the time that you've spent in prayer during these four weeks. They, they both really are so closely connected to each other. First of all, your prayer, it can't tell you how much it meant to me to know that during this time that we've been gone, you've, you've had this emphasis on prayer. And part of the reason for that is because what year we are right now is our church, that this is our 30th year, our really a year to, for us to be able to, as a, as a milestone, to look back and thank God for his faithfulness and also a year to look forward into the future and acknowledge together our complete dependence on God for his wisdom and his guidance and his strength. And there's no better way, really, no more profound way to do this than in humbling ourselves together before God in grateful and trusting prayer. Most of the time that Beck and I were away, was devoted to reading. And a large part of that reading focused on the subject of prayer. And one of the books that I read, in fact, I I decided to use it as part of my my prayer. First thing every morning, once I got into that book, because I loved it so much, is a book on Paul's prayers for the early church and what Paul had to say about prayer. One of those prayers is found in the sixth chapter of his letter to Ephesians. It's a a prayer and, and and a chapter where Paul points to the reality of the invisible spiritual war that's taking place on earth right now. And And in light of this, Paul emphasizes in that chapter how absolutely critical it is for us to depend on God in prayer. Paul, first of all, described what we're up against as followers of Christ. And this is a very familiar passage to many of us. Here's what he said. He said, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what we're up against. And after Paul wrote that, he, he then writes a, <clears throat> what you really could say is a, <clears throat> excuse me, is a command to pray. He said, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I've read that scripture since I was a kid. But during these four weeks, God just drove that scripture into me. And and I've got to tell you, everybody, I'm, I'm convinced that everything that we have accomplished as a church is because of God's power and God's faithfulness to guide us and provide and provide for us for these 30 years. I believe with all my heart that every person who's trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, every single step of spiritual growth in our lives, every ministry inside and outside this church that we've been privileged to be a part of, and even this property and this building, all of this is a result of prayer, and each one a spiritual victory in an unseen spiritual battle. I'm excited for our future as a church. But I also know that what was true in the past is equally true in the years to come. You and I, we are completely dependent on God. Completely. 
And this includes a challenge that we put in front of ourselves this year, the challenge to eliminate our debt as a church. Without doubt, it, it is a, it's a God-sized challenge. It's a challenge that puts us on our knees before God in prayer. But it's a challenge that's worth taking because it will strengthen our ability to serve God in the years to come. I'm so thankful for what's been achieved up to this point. And in March, we're going to come back to this and we're going to restart our journey toward completing that challenge. Well, Beck and I did devote uh, most of our time away to reading, which someone might think was an odd thing to do because of where we were. Some of you know, and many of you maybe do not know, but Beck and I were in Costa Rica. And we ended up there because our son has a good friend and a, a, a business associate in Minneapolis who has a second home there. And so we were able to, to stay in that place, and it was beautiful. <laughs> it was a, a house on the side of a mountain overlooking the Pacific Ocean. So uh, it had a deck out front, and that's where we sat and did our, did our reading. Now, Someone might say that, you know, boy, that's kind of weird. You're in a place that's so beautiful in another country. Why wouldn't you just travel? Well, that's not what we were there for. This wasn't a vacation to do the tourist kind of a thing. It was a sabbatical intended to give us rest and to strengthen our personal walk with God and our ability to do ministry. And that's why most of our time was spent reading, and why we decided to focus a large share of that reading on the subject of prayer, and with it to spend significant time in prayer many of the days that we were there. And now looking back, (laughs) we're so glad we did that. And, you know, I got to tell you, it was good having a car only eight days of the four weeks that we were there. It was good taking just five days to do the tourist kind of a thing. You know why? Because it slowed us down and we truly rested. And it gave God the time to speak into our hearts and to refresh us for ministry. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to begin a five-week series on on the life of Jacob. And then I'm going to follow that series with a series on prayer where I'm going to unpack at least part of what God taught me in these four weeks about prayer. And so that's all I'll say about that this morning. Uh, I could spend the rest of the morning talking about our time, but that's not our purpose here today. Our purpose here today is to finish our series by learning about Mormonism. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but Mormonism is the fastest-growing religion that started in the last 200 years. And there are currently 12 million Mormons in the world growing at a rate of 300,000 converts every year. Our speaker this morning is Brian Macker. Brian was a Mormon from the FLDS Church. And I don't know if you know this but or not, but LDS stands for Latter-day Saints, which is an, uh, another way, another title for the Mormon Church. FLDS is a the fundamentalist LDS church. It's it's a uh, and one would argue which one was the break off of of the other one, but it's it's a separate group. But Brian was before he became a believer in Jesus Christ, he was a part of the mainstream Mormon church, so he's experienced both. Now get this, everybody, Brian is actually a seventh-generation Mormon. I mean, he's a believer now, but that's what he came from. His roots go all the way back to the early days of Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon church. In fact, some of his great-great-grandfathers, going all the way back, were part of forming early Mormon church doctrine. Brian's the 28th child of a 31 child family. Anybody else here have 31 kids family? Four mothers and one father. In 1996, Brian came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And uh, he's the author of a, of a book that, that I'm going to tell you about when, when Brian finishes. But let's welcome Brian Macker with us this morning. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Brian. I, I've got to ask you right, right away, what's it like growing up in a family of 31 kids, four mothers, and one father? <laughs> well, Steve, imagine the normal sibling rivalry that you have in a monogamous family. Now multiply that by an exponent of 31. <laughs> what you get is chaos, and for the mothers, daily life was just trying to manage that and keep everything from turning into chaos in the house. We uh, because of the financial burdens that were placed upon our family because of how large it was, uh, one of the moms stayed home, and with the help of the older children, she took care of all of us. And the other three moms, they went out and they worked to help support us. And so, actually, I was raised by one of my other mothers, not my biological mother. And she was more of a mother to me than my own mother. Uh, but the hardest part was... Uh, there was constant competition within the family for my father's attention. Uh, imagine yeah. having 31 yeah. children. How do yeah. you spread yourself thin enough to give each child the love and nurturing that they need to be able to grow up emotionally healthy and well? Wow. It's, it's impossible. No matter how thin you spread yourself, you wouldn't be able to do that. Plus, there was rivalry between the mothers as they fought for the limited resources of our family for their own children. And so it was a, it was a very... Strange dynamic to grow up in, very turbulent wow. dynamic. I can only imagine. Now, you, you probably should tell everybody, what is really the major difference between the FLDS church and the LDS church? Well, Joseph Smith started practicing polygamy as part of his expanding theology on God. Okay. And uh, he started that in eight, the 1834 was when he uh, presented his revelation on that. And my fourth great-grandfather was one of the first uh, high council members. There were only uh, 12 of them. He was one of the nine that voted to accept that revelation as a revelation from God and incorporated into the canon of Mormon scripture. Okay. Uh, so from uh, 1834 is when they started practicing polygamy. Well, in 1890, the Mormon church, under pressure from the United States government, uh, revoked the practice of polygamy. But they didn't start excommunicating members until the 1930s. And when they started excommunicating members in the 1930s who were still practicing polygamy, that's when my family broke away from the Mormon church because they felt that polygamy was an essential to the faith that couldn't be just disposed of. Okay. And that's how the fundamentalist movement started. And that's how it started. Yes. Okay. And, 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 and the theological reason, again, just so everybody gets that behind polygamy... Well, polygamy, Joseph Smith taught that polygamy was the only way to godhood. You couldn't become a god without becoming a polygamist. The goal was to have at least three wives living in unity together to be able to establish your earthly kingdom so that when you went into the next life, you could then progress to godhood and establish your heavenly kingdom. All right. Now, and just to show my mind isn't together, I meant to have <laughs> your book up with me this morning, which I've read, and uh, very interesting book and helps us understand what it was like for you growing up, but you started out the book with some really pretty stunning jaw-dropping words where you spoke of your wish, your desire to literally kill your father, and maybe just share with everybody what's behind that. Okay. You know. um, I, w I went through a really tough period in my life that ended up getting me into a counselor's office where I sat down uh, to talk with a counselor because I was, I was plotting my father's murder. See, when I was 13, uh, my mom divorced my father, and she sat me down to tell me the reason why was because my father had been sexually abusing my sisters. And the, the statute of limitations had already yes. expired and so there was no justice under the law for my sisters. So I began plotting my father's murder partly because I wanted justice for my sisters. I wanted my father to pay for his crimes. But I also began plotting his murder because of a doctrine that Brigham Young taught that many of the fundamentalists still hold to today. And it's a doctrine called blood atonement where Brigham Young taught that the blood of Christ wasn't sufficient to pay for certain sins. We had to shed our own blood to be able to pay for those sins. And so in plotting my father's murder, one, I was getting justice for my sisters, and two, I was setting my father free from the torments of an eternal hell. Huh. Wow. 
Okay, Brian. Well, I'm not going to take any more time. Um, you, we had a lot to learn from you this morning. So how about if I just pray and then All right. we'll let you go. Um, teach us that. His. Father, um, thank you for Brian's willingness to be with us this morning. And having read, Father, what he so carefully prepared, I know we're going to get a lot of good information this morning that will give us an understanding of Mormonism. And so, Father, I pray that, that you will strengthen Brian, give him peace as he shares and teaches us, and guide him, Father, and uh, help us to learn. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, amen. Brian. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. All right. Good morning, Brookside. I hope you're awake, and I hope you've had your coffee, because we're going to throw a lot of information at you hard and fast. Um, thank you for the warm welcome earlier, and... I'd like you to join me in welcoming any Mormons who might be with us today. Thank you for joining us today. I want you to know that I love and respect Mormons. I respect Mormons because of their values, their good morals, and because of their devotion to good, clean living and to families, but most of all because of their love for God. And I love Mormons because, well, quite frankly, everyone I knew growing up was a Mormon. And the people that I love the most in this world are Mormon. And it's out of this love and respect that we bring this message to you today. I pray that it will help you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So I hope you've got your Bibles handy. If so, turn to Isaiah chapter 43 and put your finger there as I set some things up for us. Now, one problem that always arises when discussing Mormon theology is that there isn't a single source that we can go to in Mormon scripture that summarizes all of Mormon theology. This may come as a shock to some of you, but when it comes to the doctrines that are unique to Mormonism, none of them can be found in the Bible, and none of them can be found in the Book of Mormon either. Some of them can be found in the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants, but the majority of them are found in books that are outside of their canon of Scripture, like the Journal of Discourses or the Doctrines of Salvation or the Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. So understanding what Mormonism teaches is kind of like detective work. You have to piece it all together and then summarize it. And as a result, many Mormons aren't aware of what Mormonism really teaches. Let me give you an example of this. There was a young man that I was sharing my faith with, and he had been a Mormon for 10 years. And when we began discussing how Mormons believe that they can become gods one day, he said, whoa, wait a minute, we don't believe that. You see, he'd already gone to his missionaries, his bishop, and his stake president, and they all denied that Mormonism teaches this. Well, I assured him that Mormonism does. And naturally, he insisted that I show him where I got this idea from. So I sat down and I showed him in Joseph Smith's own words from the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where Joseph Smith says, Then shall they be gods, because they have no end. Well, he was shocked that his religious leaders had lied to him. And he went back and he confronted them. And each one of them said that the reason why they had lied to him was because he wasn't ready for that level of light yet. Well, needless to say, he renounced his Mormon faith and he became a Christian. So, folks, I'm not here to discuss what you believe about Mormonism. That would be impossible and it would be presumptuous on my part. I'm here to discuss what Mormonism teaches, and there's a good chance that there's a big difference between the two. Now, one of the things that I've noticed as a student of Mormon theology is that it is constantly changing. When Joseph Smith first founded Mormonism, he started with doctrines that were very similar to Christianity. But as Smith's theology expanded, Mormonism drifted further and further away from the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. In the end, Mormonism sets up a false version of God, a false version of Christ, and a false version of the gospel. Now, Jesus warned us about these false Christs and these false prophets who would come to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And we should be watching for them, and we should be pointing them out when we find them. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say that it's out of love and concern that I'm making this statement. It's not a judgment of anyone. I'm simply being honest about an analysis 
of what Mormon theology presents. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen to what the 15th president of the LDS Church, Gordon B. Hinckley, says. And this demonstrates the difference. When responding to critics who claim that Mormons don't believe in the traditional Christ, Gordon B. Hinckley says, No, I don't. The Christ of whom they, Christians, speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. So let me highlight some of the differences for us. In Mormonism, the triune God, who is one God in three persons, is replaced with the Mormon Godhead, three separate gods, three separate beings who are one in will or purpose. In other words, they think alike. But they are three separate gods. Jesus, or excuse me, God isn't the one and only true God, but he is one of many countless gods who have progressed to godhood throughout the ages. Jesus isn't God incarnate or God in the flesh. Jesus isn't the creator of heaven and earth, but merely part of God's creation. And Jesus isn't the only son of God, but merely the firstborn of God's many spirit children. Also in Mormonism, the atonement of Christ does not atone for mine and your individual sins. It atones for Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. We have to earn our own salvation, and therefore, salvation is not by grace through faith. It is by works. In Mormonism, there's a phrase that you can find in the Book of Mormon that says that we are saved by grace after all that we can do. What this means is that there's no real forgiveness for our sins until there's complete repentance and obedience to the laws and ordinances of the Mormon gospel. Then and only then is grace applied. Now, there's a handout in your worship bulletin today that has a chart that summarizes Mormon theology. And on the back side of it, there are some verses that I've listed for you. And there's also a quote from one of the presidents of the Mormon church who summarizes Mormon theology. And I've put this together for you so that you can, you, you can use it as a quick reference guide in the future. But for now, I want you to hold on to this because we're going to be referring to this throughout the service today. Now, the foundation of all of Mormon theology is this. God hasn't always been God. He was once a man like us who lived on a planet much like ours and progressed to godhood and that we can do the same. That this progression has been going on throughout all eternity past and will continue throughout all eternity future. Listen to what Joseph Smith has to say about this as he began to expand on his uh, theology. Joseph Smith says, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity I will refute that idea. Now, before we can define Mormonism, we need to understand a few key theological concepts. The first is that by its own definition, Mormonism teaches polytheism. Now, polytheism is the belief in one or more than one God or the belief in many gods. The other is that the Bible, on the other hand, teaches monotheism. Monotheism is the belief that there's only one God. And monotheism stands in direct opposition to polytheism. Just last week, I was discussing these theological concepts with a Mormon family member, and this was a huge stumbling block to them. They could not grasp the doctrine of the Trinity because they would not accept the monotheistic foundation that it's built upon. And for many Mormons, this is the starting point, a study of God's nature and his status as the one and only true God. What's the first essential of the Christian faith? That there is only one God. God tells us in Isaiah, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. See, God has always been God. And he will always continue to be God. And that's why the psalmist, in praise of God, reveals to us, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, when I got married, my Baptist wife wanted to know what Mormons believe. So I sat down and explained to her what is known as the Mormon law of eternal progression, pretty much the same presentation that you're going to get today. And when I got done, 
She said, well, okay, I think I've heard enough. There's no way that I can ever become a Mormon. Now, out of curiosity, I asked her why. And she said, well, the Bible's very clear. There's only one God. And there's no way that you or I can ever become a God. I said, well, where does the Bible say that? So turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. I want to read to you the verse that she read to me. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Now, folks, I can't tell you how powerful and devastating this passage of Scripture was. This passage of Scripture had the power to completely destroy everything that I had been raised with and everything that I was working for as a Mormon. All of Mormon theology came crashing down for me. Please, if you don't remember any other verse that I present to you today, please remember this verse. Why do you need to remember this verse? Because it's an important verse. Why is it an an important verse? Because it explains to us an important essential about God's very nature, and that is that he is truly unique. He is the first God, and he is the last God, and apart from him there is no other God. He's the only God in existence. He is truly one of a kind. He is the only member of his species. There isn't a race of gods out there like there's a race of men. There is only God. And the one and only true God of Israel charged Israel with this monotheistic passage. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. What did God want us to know, believe, and understand? Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Now, we need to understand that this isn't Isaiah speaking to us, but this is God speaking to us through Isaiah. And I, I don't know of any other higher authority than God. And when God says something, I don't know about you, but it settles it for me. The thinking's done. And God says that there were no gods formed before him. And God says there will be no gods formed after him either. Now, at first, I thought that this was just one passage of Scripture that had been taken out of context somehow or that hadn't been translated correctly. But as I began to study the nature of God, I found that there were many other monotheistic passages throughout Scripture. But don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to what the fifth president of the LDS Church, Lorenzo Snow, said. When summarizing Mormonism, he coined this phrase, which happens to be the most concise definition of Mormonism ever written. He says, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Now, there are many other quotes that I could give you today, but because there isn't sufficient time, I'm forced to move on. But throughout Scripture, the triune God of Christianity has been explaining things to us about his nature, and he's been doing so in ways that our finite minds can understand. He tells us that he is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, that he is the first God and the last God. And apart from him, no other God exists and that no gods were formed before him and none will be formed after him either. And that he, the all knowing God, knows of no other gods. See, all others aren't really gods, but wannabes. They are either men who are trying to establish their own divinity or they are idols invented by men. But either way, they aren't really gods because there's only one God in existence. The bottom line is this. Either God is a liar, or Mormonism 
is false. You can't have it both ways. The competing theologies of monotheism and polytheism cannot both simultaneously be true. If one is true, it invalidates the other. Yet it's God himself who invalidates the polytheistic doctrines of Mormonism. So, what it really boils down to is this. Who do you consider to be the real authority about God's nature? God or Joseph Smith? Excuse me, can I get some water up here? Thank you. Getting a little dry here. Now, thank, thank you very much. Now, there are three key phases of Mormon theology that we're going to focus on today. Sorry, cameraman. <laughs> and they are, where did we come from? Where are we now? And where are we headed? Every major world religion has a story of origin. And this story of origin tries to, exp- to explain these three quick questions. It tries to answer them. Mormonism is no different. And so this is what we're going to focus on today is the story of origin for Mormonism. Now, if you've got your chart in your hand, we're going to start in the upper left-hand corner. You're going to see a circle up there that says realms of deity, spirit life, and first estate. This is what I'm going to be referring to as we discuss what Mormons call the pre-existence theology of Mormonism. Now, in the pre-existence... Mormonism teaches that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as ours and that he with his many goddess wives, yes, God is a polygamous, he with his many goddess wives procreated and produced spirit children. And these spirit children have no physical bodies. They're in spirit form only. And the firstborn of God's spirit children was Lucifer and Jesus. And the secondborn, boy, sorry, Mormons, I didn't mean to offend. Uh, (laughs) The firstborn was Jesus The second born was Lucifer. And in Mormonism, Jesus and Lucifer are our spirit brothers. Now, in order to progress to godhood, God's children needed to receive physical bodies so that they could procreate as well. And in order to progress to godhood, they had to be able to subdue these bodies or conquer the flesh and conquer the sinful nature of the flesh. In order for this to be a true test, all knowledge and memory of the preexistence had to be erased, and that happened when we entered into our physical bodies. And in order to be tested by the flesh, we had to fall into a sinful nature and become mortal. So in Mormonism, Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden was a good thing. It was a blessing in disguise. Because if he had never fallen in the Garden we wouldn't have been able to progress to Godhood. So God, in the preexistence, asked Jesus and Lucifer, his two oldest spirit children, to present a plan before the council of gods for man's salvation. And the council of the gods chose Jesus' plan. And this infuriated Lucifer. And Lucifer led a revolt in heaven, and then there was a great war in heaven. And in the war in heaven, Lucifer and his armies were defeated. And they were cast down to earth. They were cast down in spirit form. They could not receive physical bodies. They could not progress to Godhood, but they were cast down to earth to tempt the souls of men. There was another third of the hosts of heaven that were neutral during the war in heaven, or they were proven cowards in battle. Now, God allowed them to receive physical bodies and to progress to Godhood, but God cursed them. Because they had failed to act for God in heaven, they would not be allowed to act for God on earth. And in Mormonism, the priesthood is the power and authority to act for God on earth. In his book, Mormon Doctrine, Bruce McConkie explains this for us. He says, Those who were less valiant in the preexistence and who thereby had certain spiritual restrictions imposed upon them during mortality are known to us as the Negroes. Such spirits are sent to earth through the lineage of Cain, the mark put upon him for his rebellion against God and his murder of Abel being a black skin. This racist view is not in keeping with Christian doctrine, where we are all created in God's image. And 
This curse was to remain in effect until the final judgment. But in 1975, Spencer W. Kimball, the, the current president of the Mormon church, revoked the curse and they began giving blacks the priesthood. And we applaud the fact that they have removed this racist ban on blacks holding the priesthood and started giving them the priesthood, but they haven't renounced the racist theology behind it. Now, there was another third in the host of heaven who were valiant in the war in heaven. And for them, God blessed them with the ability to come down and receive physical bodies. And he blessed them with the ability to progress to Godhood. And he blessed them with the right to hold the priesthood. And he blessed them with a white and delightsome skin to set them apart as his chosen seed and to separate them from those who could not hold the priesthood. Well, this leads us to where are we now? So once again, with your chart in hand, we're going to move down to the lower left-hand corner. And you'll see what looks like a globe that looks much like planet Earth and looks like there's a couple going for a Sunday drive into outer space, I suppose. This is what I'm going to be referring to as we discuss what Mormons call our probationary period. And this is where we are now. So God sent his children to Earth to receive physical bodies, and when he did, he created Adam. Now, Brigham Young taught a very controversial doctrine called the Adam-God doctrine. Brigham Young taught that God came down in the form of Adam to start his family on earth and that it was God in the Garden of Eden who sinned. So if Brigham Young is right, the Mormon God is a sinner. He's not holy. He's not righteous. Now, the Mormon church has renounced this doctrine but they haven't renounced the prophet who taught it. They still revere Brigham Young as one of their greatest prophets. Now, in order to progress to godhood, you had to be able to subdue the flesh, and you had to also keep all the laws and ordinances of the Mormon gospel, which include baptism by immersion by one in authority, the laying on of hands to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, priesthood ordination, temple endowment rituals, temple marriage rituals, partaking of the sacrament, baptisms for the dead, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping all the commandments of all three Mormon scriptures, being faithful in the giving of your tithes and offerings, (sighs) obeying the word of wisdom, which is the dietary law, magnifying the church callings, which means sustaining the leaders of the Mormon church as true prophets of God, and the list goes on and on. There are over 4,800 laws and ordinances of the Mormon gospel that you have to keep in order to progress to godhood, which is the highest goal of Mormonism. Well, this leads us to where are we headed? So once again, I'm going to refer back to our chart. So far, we've covered the left side of the chart. Now we're going to cover the right side of the chart. And on the right side of the chart, you're going to see that there are three different levels or three different kingdoms within the Mormon heaven. And there's a path that leads from planet Earth to each one of those levels of the Mormon heaven. And along that path, there are things that you have to do in order to achieve that level of heaven. So we're going to follow the path to each one of these kingdoms, and we're going to start with the lowest one. But one of the things we need to understand before we begin is that in Mormonism... The atonement of Christ does not atone for mine and your individual sins. It atones for Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. Through Adam's fall, death came into the world. And it's through Christ's atonement that death is conquered. And all will be resurrected from the grave. In Mormonism, salvation is universal, which means that we will all be raised from the grave. But from that point on, we have to earn our salvation or earn uh, what level of heaven we're going to go to. So... Let's go back to planet Earth and start with the lowest kingdom. The the path to the telestial kingdom is known as the low way. It is reserved for those who are dishonest, liars, sorcerers, adulterers, and whoremongers. Those who make it to the telestial kingdom make a pit stop in hell for a thousand years. In Mormonism, hell is temporary. It is not eternal. The only ones who will suffer eternally in the Mormon hell is Satan, his false prophet, and their minions. Now, after Christ's millennial reign ends 
and they are set free from hell, they progress to the celestial kingdom where they will be like the angels. They will be servants of those in the higher kingdoms. They will be single. They cannot procreate. They cannot progress to Godhood. And they are separated from God the Father and Jesus Christ. The only member of the Mormon Godhead who can visit them is the Holy Ghost. Well, let's go back to planet Earth and let's follow the path now to the celestial kingdom. And that path is known as the Broadway. It is reserved for those who are good and honorable, but blinded by the craftiness of men or who weren't valiant in their testimony for Christ or who died without the law. Those who attain the terrestrial kingdom will be like the angels. They will be servants of those in the highest kingdom, but they will be single. They cannot procreate. They cannot progress to God and they are separated from God the Father. The only members of the Mormon Godhead who can visit them is Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost. Now, you may have noticed that there are three levels within the highest kingdom, the celestial kingdom. And the path to that kingdom is known as the straight and narrow way. Those who, get, who make it to the celestial kingdom, regardless of which level they're on, get to dwell in the presence of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. Now, in order to attain the lowest level of the celestial kingdom... It's for those who repent, have faith in Joseph Smith and the Mormon church, receive church membership through baptism and the laying on of hands to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They will be allowed to progress to godhood, but they can't because they haven't had their temple endowments performed or their temple marriage ceremony performed for them in this life. But if they didn't get it done in this life, they can have it done for them by proxy. This is the reason why Mormons perform baptisms for the dead endowment rituals, and marriage ceremonies for the dead. In fact, Joseph Smith taught that this work for their salvation was essential to our own as well. Now, the middle level is reserved for those who keep the requirements of the first level. But it's also for those who are moral, loyal to the church and its leaders, faithful in the giving of their tithes and offerings, those who obey the word of wisdom and fulfill the duties of their calling, whatever that might be, and the church will tell you what your calling is. And also for those who have received their temple endowments. Those who attain the middle level of the celestial kingdom will be able to progress to godhood, but they still can't until they've had their temple marriage performed. See the banner on your chart that says celestial marriage? This is what Mormons refer to when they are talking about their marriages that are performed in the temples that are sealed for eternity. Now they can have those done in this life or by proxy. After that, they'll be able to progress. Now the highest level of the Mormon celestial kingdom is the inner circle of God's family. It's available to all those who keep the requirements of the first two levels and who've had their temple marriages performed Those who attain this level are exalted to godhood and begin procreating with their many goddess wives and creating and populating their own worlds that they believe that they will be gods over, just as God the Father has done. Now, clearly, the polytheistic theology of Mormon stands in opposition of everything that God has taught us about his nature. Mormonism sets up a false version of God, a false version of Christ, and a false gospel and that gospel is based on works not on grace and it was this works-based theology that really messed with me when i first started going to a christian church see i was trying to do everything i could to earn my salvation i was singing in a choir i was teaching sunday school classes i was singing in a praise and worship band and i was going on evangelistic crusades trying to get people to say the sinner's prayer but there was there was a problem And that was there was a sinful nature that hadn't been dealt with yet. And that sinful nature began to mess with my marriage. And as I was striving to become the God, the man that God wanted me to be, I set aside my prayer time as my drive to work. And so as as I drive to work, it was just me and God in the front seat of my car. And about this time, the pastor of my church began teaching a sermon series on the new creation that comes to those who are in Christ. And as I looked in the mirror, all I saw was the same ugly man that I'd always been. 
Nothing had changed about Brian. There was no new creation. The only thing that had changed about Brian was uh, Brian got better at playing church. Brian got better at hiding his sins. But there was no new creation. So one day on the the way to work, I got into an argument with God. I wanted answers. And God answered me and he said, Brian, what's wrong? And I said, my life is a mess. And you said you'd make a, a, a new creation out of those who come to you and I see no evidence of this in my life. And God asked me, Brian, who died for your sins? And I said, well, you did, Lord. And he said, okay, well, what's missing then? What haven't you done? And immediately, Romans 10, 9 through 11 came into my mind where the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So I confessed to God that I hadn't taken this step of faith. And God said, you wonder why sin still rules in your life? I can't fix what you haven't given me, Brian. And I knew in that moment that what God wanted wasn't a sinner's prayer. What God wanted was my life. What God wanted was a total surrender of myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I pulled my car off to the side of the road. And just me and God in the front seat of my car, I received Christ. And from that moment on, God began to change me and make me into a new creation. One of the first things that God wanted to change about me was my inability to forgive my father for sexually abusing my sisters. And I said, God, I can't do it. He's not worthy of my forgiveness. And God ever so gently reminded me, neither were you. And I knew that I had to forgive my father. And so I called him. Nothing really changed about my relationship with my father except that we were finally able to talk to each other without fighting. But he was just as distant as he'd always been in my life. What did change surprised me. See, when I learned to forgive... God was able to come in and start healing me. God wanted me to learn that forgiveness isn't a feeling that you wait to have and then express. Forgiveness is a choice that you make to no longer hold the other person accountable. Isn't that what God did for us in Christ? He made the choice to no longer hold us accountable for our sins. And so I made the choice to forgive my father. And when I did that, God was able to come in and begin healing me. You see, when we hang on to that anger and that bitterness with everything that we've got, God can't come in and begin to heal and make you whole. He can't take that out of your hands. And that thing that you're holding on to so tightly is what is destroying you and tearing you apart. And I really didn't understand this until I came upon this statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 28, verse 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I know that there are many of you here today who have burdens. Someone has harmed you. Someone has offended you. What I'd like you to do is just bow your heads for a moment and close your eyes because what God wants right now is for you to 
understand the healing power of forgiveness and the healing power of Christ. And while you've got your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to meditate on this verse for a moment. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. What's your burden? Has someone harmed you? Has someone offended you? Is there something in your life, some event that you aren't able to forgive yourself of? What's your burden? Christ promises those who will come to him that you will find rest. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. What's Jesus' yoke in this verse? Jesus' yoke is forgiveness. And Jesus promises those who will take up his yoke of forgiveness that you will find rest for your souls. Jesus also promises that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And my friend, I'm here to tell you that forgiveness is a lot easier to carry than the burden you're carrying right now. So while you've got your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let's go ahead and go before the Lord and pray that he would help us to understand what forgiveness really means and be able to apply this passage to our lives. Father, we come to you with our burdens today. There are many of us here who have harbored anger towards someone who has harmed us in some way, and we recognize that this burden is tearing us apart and preventing us from experiencing the healing power of Christ and the healing power of forgiveness. Lord, help us understand that forgiveness isn't a feeling that we wait to have and then express, but a choice that we make to no longer hold the other person accountable. That when anger wells up inside of us, that we will take it to the cross rather than to the person we're forgiving. Father, you tell us that vengeance is yours and we surrender our right to justice. We lay that burden down at the altar. Father, we take up Jesus' yoke of forgiveness and make the choice to forgive. Help us to be faithful in this commitment as you are faithful to us. Father, forgive us of our sins and help us to be reconciled to those whom we've offended. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.